Hello, I'm David Mosscrop. Welcome to Open to Debate. Canada's housing crisis continues with no end in sight. Shelter, a fundamental human need, is unaffordable for millions, and the surge in property value has created two classes, homeowners and non-homeowners. These two classes are often at odds with competing interests. Those who wish to enter the market often prefer lower prices, while those who own stand to benefit from higher prices. Governments at every level have been slow to respond to the housing crisis, and their actions have been insufficient to curb the problem. These governments often try to have it both ways, cheaper housing without cost to existing homeowners who wish to preserve their equity. At the same time, while many experts preach supply, which is essential in lowering prices, that may not be enough. Is there another way out of the housing conundrum? What if we change how we taxed property? Could a land value tax help solve the housing crisis? My guest on this episode of Open to Debate is Floyd Marinescu, an activist, entrepreneur, angel investor, and head of Commonwealth Canada and UBI Works. Let's start with the problem and then work our way to discussing a potential solution. The problem is the housing crisis. Housing is unaffordable. It's unaffordable across the country. It's increasingly unaffordable. Uh, Politicians have been talking about doing something about this for years. The solutions obviously aren't having the effect we need them to have. What's your assessment of the origins and the causes for the persistence of unaffordable housing in Canada? Yeah, this is much, much debate. You'll hear people say that it's it's a supply issue. Uh, you'll hear people say it's it's all kinds of different things. But I think there's one key aspect that uh, you don't hear a lot about in the media uh, because it, it doesn't really feel really good. It's just the impact on how we treat housing as an investment. Uh, housing is long-term wealth creation vehicle. Uh, there's simply no way that you could have an economy where we have low cost of housing while at the same time, everybody wants housing prices to go up. Like that's almost obvious. That's why no politicians are talking about programs that will actually lower the, the price of housing. They, they say, we'll make it affordable without lowering the price. But if we need to, things need to cost half as much as they do for new families to, to, uh, to have a, a reasonable um, quality of life. Uh, so what we're seeing across many markets is um, investors setting the floor for housing, costs uh, buying up uh, 50 to 90% of condos in some markets, um, uh, we're in this displacing families ability to, to buy and this, and, and frankly, all of us are, are complicit. It's not like some external factor. Of course, there are people that are buying second and third homes, but all of us, uh, buy a home with the expectation that prices should rise. Um, and sir, when you do that, then we're willing to bid more. People are willing to bid more because they know that prices will go eventually always go up in five, 10 or, or 20 years. Um, so this is an issue at the core, I think, of the housing market. Uh, people uh, want to say that it's supply. Of course, more supply will always help the market. But, you know, Canada is is pretty much tied with the U.S., U.K., uh, and, and Australia for a uh, number of, of homes per thousand. I mean, it's we're, yes, we're technically the least number of homes per thousand people, but the numbers are almost equivalent within like, a, like to five or ten units difference. Yet pricing here is so much more expensive. So it, it's just not true to say it's only supply in there. Of course, supply is a factor, but uh, we're in a market where we're increasingly building homes for investors instead of families. And we're interested in like, how do we turn that around? How do we make homes affordable for families? I've always found it baffling. Well, 
shocking, but not surprising might be the way to put it, that politicians will come out and they'll say simultaneously, we want to make homes more affordable for people, uh, but they will do everything they possibly can to avoid tanking anybody's equity, right? As if it's possible to suck and blow at the same time. And it, I, it always struck me as, and I felt naive for thinking about this, as if I was missing something to think, well, if you want more people to to get into affordable houses and house, the price of housing has to come down um, and you can't at the same time preserve everyone's equity. There has to be someone who loses in this scenario, right? I mean, the, so I, I want to turn now to to housing speculators in particular. Now, I'm not talking about mom and pops, uh, you know, young couples buying starter houses, folks buying a downgrade retirement house. I'm I'm talking about speculators who are who are deliberately going into the market to try to to flip houses, to play the housing game, to uh, to treat this as an institutional investment. Um, how how much of the problem is is institutional speculators, and how much of the problem is the day-to-day folks who are just trying to get a home to get by? Well, the, the vast majority of housing wealth is in residential, uh, in principal residences. So it's hard to say uh, how much is is based on institutional uh, speculators. But I mean, even I don't really like the word speculators because I mean, how much speculation is really going on? Like the prices always go up. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. The house not, always wins. It's like, it's like Las Vegas ultimately, right? Yeah, it's not really speculating. I mean, I know people who bought apartment condos uh, in a negative cash flow position and rented them out um, because they they speculate that housing prices will go up. Now they eventually will. Now if they can survive the downturn, eventually the, the prices will go up and they'll be in the clear. But I, I think that the problem is that everyone, including institutional investors, are are prioritizing uh, capital gain, are prioritizing growth in the asset value. Uh, and, and bidding up prices uh, for that reason, or willing to hold long term for that reason, or the the actual technical term for speculators, someone that's withholding uh, property from uh, from its best use for not selling it to someone who needs it, or or has empty land or a parking lot and isn't developing it because because land prices just go up. So why should they bother? Like that's the technical term of spec- speculator. Um, those are all problematic. Like all of the above are problematic. It's problematic that a, a first time home buyer would. Be willing to to bid for fifty k more than the next person because expect that prices will go up and they'll make their money back eventually anyway. Meanwhile, they're going to pay the bank the full cost of their house and then some in interest payments over their lifetime. So it's 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 not clear that they'll actually make a profit over the long term. So um, it, so I argue it's this expectation of profiting from increasing pricing that's driving the activities of families. It's driving the activities of of uh, institutional um, uh, residential real estate buyers is driving the behavior even of pension funds that are buying out apartment buildings and, and doing and evictions to uh, to raise rents and raise capital gain because you know th- then they'll get more leverage to buy more. Um, it, it's just driving the whole industry in a way that raises the, c- the cost of living for everyday families. And I think we'd be better off in an economy where these tens of billions of dollars of uh, coming from people who have a few extra bucks to spend rather than going into buying second or third homes or, or, uh, you know, or condos being built for, for this buying class that it, it instead went into the real economy in spending and in starting businesses and, and in the stock market, which capitalizes Canadian businesses. Like that's a much better, it's a much better economy, uh, rather than this money being sunk and lost in, in land equity, 
which is predominantly when you think of buying a home, you're actually buying the land under the home. Like it's in, in the cities, it's often 80% of the value of what you're paying for is, is the land. So fundamentally, we have an issue with, with the economics around land. Like we're not creating more or less of it. And because it makes money in your sleep and it just goes up in value, there's less of an incentive to, to develop and create enough density where it's needed. Um, and so I'm interested, and we've been studying on Commonwealth Canada, uh, how to turn that around so that we actually are building enough homes to satisfy market needs, the market for people's need to live, not the market for people's want of wealth uh, and an increasing of capital gain. Uh, in a way that frankly is more fair and more capitalist than what we have now. Because these, these incentives that drive so much money uh, into housing is not capitalist. Like it's, it's, it's feudalist. It's like wanting to acquire land to profit from its gain. And its gain is created by society, not by the individual investor. You know, land value goes up because of the businesses, the workers in the area, public investments. Um, it, it's not actually going up because of the work of the, of the landlord. That's as, been as old as, as uh, Adam Smith. It's a real, I mean, I, I suppose it's almost a literal sense of rent seeking, <laughs> well, at least when you're talking about landlords. I mean, they're really, as you mentioned, there's, there's, no, there's no value added. Uh, I, I want to dig into so, to, to dig into solutions now because you have a, a fascinating program uh, that has a, a few elements, but I want to focus on one to start. Um, and, and I want to get to that in a minute. So we're, we're going to talk about land value tax in, in a moment. But first, I want to understand what the current regime for taxing home ownership uh, is in this country, at least in general. I mean, you know, provinces, municipalities, things may vary here and there. But in general, what's the regime for taxing home ownership in this country? Yeah, I mean, in general, I municipally, people pay a property tax. It's often 1% or, or so of the property's value. It's usually dramatically undervalued. And like even the home I'm in, it, it, the value on paper is uh, is like, I think, less than half of what I actually paid for it. Uh, but then in places like in uh, British Columbia, they actually have a really good assessment system and uh, the values there are, are nearly matching the market rates. So there's a property tax. Um, then there's, uh, there's obviously, um, uh, from a capital gains perspective, uh, when you sell a principal residence, you don't pay any tax on it. Uh, and if you own second or third properties or you own commercial properties, you would pay a capital gain of uh, 25% uh, upon its sale. Um, and and that is uh, that is the current property regime. So basically the tax system is, in a sense, is rewarding um, uh, people who treat homeowners and homeowners as, as assets because you pay less tax on it than you pay on income. I mean, people are paying, you know, 50% income taxes in many cases. Uh, meanwhile, uh, you can get a second or third home and only pay 25% on the capital gain of that. And um, so that's that's that basically promotes uh, homes to be expensive because you're you're just you're just incentivizing more money to flow there. Um, uh, now there's just there's a different way that we could approach that. You know, we we could tax um, uh, incomes less, so we could tax uh, assets and land more. Uh, that would have dramatically different and beneficial uh, outcomes in how the market works. Um, but uh, yeah, that basically the current regime, many would say that it's it's incentivizing. The very system that we're in, even the, even some of the benefits the government creates for first-time homebuyers, mm -hmm. um, there are tax credits for first-time homebuyers. So, so let so let me explain. Let me get that straight. So homes are too expensive. <laughs> so we're going to sink tens of billions of dollars, hundreds of billions even, to help people uh, pay more for homes to make them more expensive. Yeah, like that's 
exactly what the credit does. And it's been proven yeah. in research to show that it leads to increasing home prices in various countries where it's been tried. Um, we, we also have a tax regime where we don't recognize that the increasing value of, of land uh, is often due to public infrastructure. So what happens is, you know, why don't we have more uh, public transit uh, in Ontario? Why don't we have high-speed trains? Why don't we have more subways? Well, because so working people will pay for the cost of a subway expansion, and it's very expensive. And as the subway gets, gets uh, a, new, a new plot gets implemented, a new station goes up, the value of all the homes around it uh, go up significantly. So, so the value has been created, but it's been created for the, for the property owners who happen to be in the area, uh, as opposed to return back to society at large, which actually paid for that infrastructure in the first place. Uh, you know, that's why um, some, some countries like Singapore, uh, I think there's a region in Australia, I'm sure there's more places that I, that I, I don't know at the moment. Um, they actually have a land value capture system where if there's a change in zoning, um, uh, then uh, part of the, the the price is frozen, and the increase in value from the zoning change is taxed at, uh, at sale, which is pretty smart because it means that you could self finance infrastructure. You could actually pay for subways and and high speed train expansions uh, without uh, going through general revenues, that, without going through income taxes. You could actually pay for it uh, through the increasing land value it creates without harming the homeowners because the homeowners never had that value in the first place. Mm -hmm. you know, that, that's just a windfall that comes from a public investment. So like, I would love to see us have, uh, you know, transnational high-speed trains. Why don't we have it? This is a way we could do that in a way that it would pay for itself. And um, so it's, so I mentioned that under your question of how is housing taxed now, the fact is the value increase from zoning changes or public investments isn't taxed, which, which again yeah. incentivizes um, holding and speculating um, on property so it, it's it's systemic. It's kind of a bit. It's everywhere uh, that we, we treat things this way. And and before we get into the land value proposition itself, which we're going to do in just a second, uh, listening to you run down this problem, it strikes me as problematic for a number of reasons. But one of them is it encourages a concentration of wealth uh, into a class of homeowners who are a separate class from those who who don't own homes, who are renters, for instance. There's an ownership class, there's a renter class. They're treated very, very differently, much like a, you know wealthy folks who primarily earn off of capital gains are taxed very differently than those who primarily earn off of income, and they're taxed favorably. And it sounds like homeowners fall into a similar relationship compared to renters, right? And that those two are often treated very, very differently by the political class. So how big of a problem is the... Uh, this when it comes to the concentration of wealth in in home ownership? Oh, it's it's huge. I mean, I think if if people who are care about inequality or poverty walk away with one thing from this this uh, discussion, it's uh, uh it's the impact of, of housing on inequality. Canada's billionaires' total wealth adds up to like two hundred fifty billion dollars or something like that, but the value of land alone, not even the structures in Canada, is six point four trillion dollars. Uh, so, you know, the, all this focus on billionaires is is kind of missing the elephant in the room, that the, the real great divide uh, between uh, society is, is renters versus owners. Because uh, in the last, uh, I believe, 20 years in Canada, even pre-COVID, uh, pre-COVID, these numbers held uh, average wealth of um, of a property owner went up $385,000, but average rent for a renter went up $10,000. So that, that that's a dramatic change in, in wealth outcomes. That that you know from, is not really earned because you know working people are 
basically paying for the property appreciation in these communities and that is benefiting property owners. And does it really benefit, I mean, property owners? I mean, you know, if you have a house that's gone up, that's doubled in value over, over 30 years, um, you can't really benefit from it unless you've had two or three of them and you sell those. Because if you sell your primary home, you got to buy another home that right. also went up by, you know, that doubled in the last 30 years. So it's, it's, it's kind of a, a, a system that is, is, is eating itself in a sense, um, where, you know, it's just making life more expensive for next generations, for, uh, for, for our newcomers, immigrants, for, for our, our, our children who can't afford to live near their parents and grandparents. Um, so yeah, it, it is a big issue on inequality. Um, I also, from the point of view of poverty, like it's, this has been studied, the, the higher housing prices go, it's like a game of musical chairs, like high income people end up buying the homes that was previously were middle-class, middle-class people end up buying or renting homes that could have been afforded by low income people and, and, and really low income people end up on the streets. Like that, that's what happens when housing uh, prices get too high, which again, when land prices get too high. So we got to find a way to, to make the, this growing value of, of land, which is reflective of society's progress, um, benefit everyone. Like we've got to find a way to incentivize productive development and not unproductive uh, money sinking into, frankly, literally sinking into the land. <laughs> well, let's, well, let's talk about that right now. Let's talk about potential solutions because, because we know that there's been plenty of solutions uh, floated on both the supply side and the demand side. There's been patchwork government regulations, sometimes at odds with itself, government programs, uh, pouring uh, more uh, uh, gas into the fire with new home ownership tax credits and plans. You can take money out of your RSP to put down to, for a first time down payment and so on. Uh, banning foreign buyers for a period of time, banning flipping for a couple of years and so on. So there are patchworks of attempts. The new uh, program to get municipalities to build by funding federal bucks, which has created a big fight across the Federation with the provinces, of course, absolute mess. You're advocating for a land tax and uh, concomitantly shifting away from income tax for a subset of taxpayers. Can you walk us through how that system would work? Uh, yeah. So a land value tax is a tax on the unimproved value of the land. Uh, it means that if you have a skyscraper in a, in a home um, or a parking lot occupying the same amount of land in the same part of town, they would be paying the same land tax, uh, which means the incentives would be there for the parking lot owner and, or the house owner to, to, to redevelop or to sell to developers to create the density that is needed. And, and certainly, um, you know, the, the parking lot owner would not benefit from just uh, sitting there and waiting for, for taxes for land value to go up because they're paying a higher carrying cost uh, for that land, because if the land can sustain a skyscraper, that there's enough demand for society for it, uh, th then th then the value uh, of that land would be too high for the um, parking lot owner to afford to just sit on it as a parking lot. Um, so it, it's generally seen as it's a kind of a property tax, but again, uh, as I just mentioned, it, instead of taxing the result of, of human productivity, like taxing improvement on the land, creating more units, uh, that can actually currently increase your tax bill because your property tax goes up. Uh, if you if you develop and it goes down, if you let your house dilapidate, which is kind of a perverse incentive, right? The the, the land tax um, uh, doesn't tax you more if you improve the home, if if you develop, if you add more units, uh, and and if you don't do that, then uh, and you're in an area that needs more more housing, then you're encouraged to do that because it's 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 uh, you're you're paying a land tax that's um, that 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 incentivizes you and pushes you to do that. 
So it, it would impact um, supply, demand, and allocation incentives uh, that are currently, I think, plaguing the market. Like on the demand side, um, at the end of the day, like uh, housing is uh, a long-term wealth creation vehicle. So a lot of money is going into housing more than would it would if if it wasn't a long-term wealth creation vehicle. And let's, so let me differentiate. There's a difference between appreciation of of the property and versus the yield you can get by renting it out. You know, you know, renting out a property to someone uh, can generate you a fair return. It's like a business service. It's almost like leasing someone a car. Uh, and and that would be um, that that is a good business that is actually useful to society, but but um, buying homes and then not developing them or not maintaining them well, be, be just because the value will go up uh, in the long term, that isn't really useful to society. You, you're not necessarily adding or providing the service. So a land tax uh, basically taxes this unearned gain of of value creation that comes from society's improvements and society progress, societal progress, um, and in exchange, you know what untax something else. And generally it's argued that we should shift from income taxes, taxes on companies, even taxes on properties, instead of just tax land. Because that what that means is you're you're improving the incentives for productivity, for working, for starting businesses, for uh, for creating uh, new, new houses. Uh, and actually you're you're just taxing the unearned gain that comes from um, uh, land appreciation overall, um, which would have Huge impacts on the you know the supply, uh, the demand. It would get a lot of a lot of investors out of the market who currently are only buying because they expect mm-hmm. appreciation. Uh, I just saw a, um, a stat on a on a Global Mill article that that if uh, if mom and pop investors, for instance, exited the market, it, you could create a million homes over ten years without actually cr- constructing any new, any new homes uh, because uh, they would not be interested in it, simply renting them out for rental yields. Because um, uh, that you know, because if it's not also a, a capital gain, so this is this is how it works. We're literally collecting the value that society creates and redistributing it back to society through whatever government, uh, public services, and expenditures that we have, instead of taxing uh, earned incomes through income taxes. And at Commonwealth Canada, we've been trying to crunch the actual numbers on this, and uh, we estimate that uh, federally across Canada, if there was an overall uh, land value tax that would be equivalent to uh, 4.2% of of today's um, a tax on today's value of land. Um, it, it would actually you could actually use that to replace uh, uh, income tax on the first eighty eight thousand dollars of earned income, which means that you wouldn't pay any income tax on the first eighty eight thousand uh, dollars that you make, uh, which would improve it's good everyone. news for journalists. That means no income tax at all for most journalists. <laughs> Sometimes for most journalists <laughs> and uh, even wealthy people, the first eighty-eight thousand wouldn't be taxed, sure. and um, and it would have you know profound improvements on the bureaucracy. Less people would have to like worry about those things. Uh, you know, be cheaper for businesses to hire, easier for people to to work wherever they want, um, and uh, and that's national. And I actually think the number would be higher because realistically, this would be done provincially. Um, and if, if BC or Ontario implemented this, where the values are higher, it could even be a higher tax offset. Maybe the Maybe there wouldn't be any tax at all. Right. So now so that's one way to do it. Another way to do it, which is more incremental, is what we're actually seeing um, in parts of the U.S. where the cities themselves have a split rate tax. They're reducing the property tax and they're increasing a, a land tax. So the mayor of Detroit is trying to do this now uh, as a way to to curb uh, blights, to to um, uh, to increase the burden on people that are just holding um, dilapidated homes first, uh, waiting for their price to go up like a lottery ticket. And, and reduce the tax on people living in their homes 
so actually he's, he's promoting land, a shift from property tax to land tax as a form of tax relief that 97% of people in Detroit would have a lower tax bill. So we're actually doing that distributional analysis at Commonwealth right now. And uh, we're not finished yet, but it, it seems that on, on the average, most of Canadians, including homeowners, most homeowners on the average will be better off in such a tax shift on a pure numbers basis, cash basis, means that you pay less in land value tax uh, than you would in um, in income tax. Um, and uh, I didn't mention, so the 4.2% of current values, though, the problem is, and where the political economy side comes in, uh, is that it would reduce the the value of that land. So, so uh, it would be equivalent to capturing three quarters of the rental value of land, the imputed rent of land. It means if you were to rent it out, well, what, what would you rent it for? Um, and so that would reduce the value of land on average by, by three quarters. And the, and the uh, median home would be 42% cheaper to buy as a result. Uh, so that's, that's a large loss in equity if you go for the full big tax shift vision. Um, which would you know, dramatically improve how the economy works, increase wages, lead to more productivity and lower prices, but it would lead to a decrease in home equity for uh, the current generation in exchange for many for being better off uh, on a cash flow basis. For instance, like one case we looked at, uh, someone might have lost uh, um, uh, like $100,000 in, in net worth, but they would gain $10,000 a year by, in less income tax paid. Uh, um, by the switch to land tax. Now, I would argue that that's a good deal because y- you can't really buy a, a bond that pays you 10% uh, anywhere. So like if, you're, if your net worth goes down 100 grand, but you're paying 10,000 less per year, like that's a, you're actually far better off uh, than, uh, than otherwise. You've anticipated a question I want to get to expressly very yeah. quickly though, um, about knock-on effects. So you've made a good case here for a lot of people who ought to, who may be better off taking a hit with their the bottom, if, assuming their 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 equity is fundamentally or even primarily or exclusively, for that matter, bound up in the value of their of their home. Um, do, are, are there people who are left out of this scenario who are who are net losers? Uh, those who've got their retirements bound up in in their house, they don't have a pension, say they've got a house and their plan is to sell the house and downgrade and live off of that. Uh, what about investment plans? I mean, you mentioned earlier that there are pensions, including uh, public service pensions who are bound up in these. Uh, are, are there net losers in this scenario? Yeah, there are uh, net losers. That's why any realistic transition has to account for that. Uh, so there's many ways to approach that. For instance, that um, uh, that seniors, people on low incomes could have a um, unlimited deferral ability to so the tax could apply uh, as a lien on the property until it's eventually sold. Uh, that's one approach. Another approach is tax credits for for those on on fixed incomes, but but live in homes they've been in for a while that they could get for ten or twenty years, giving them enough time to uh, to, to 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 sell or decide where they want to live. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, that that needs to be accounted for. Tax credits for farmers, because in, in some cases, uh, you know, farmers have land that's worth a lot more than the produce that they're producing. Um, and but that's an issue for social policy, right? Is how val- how much do we value? Uh, creating our own food stocks, and that government should have the right incentives and and supports in place. Um, but it would um, uh, it, it, obviously by making life uh, more affordable for the next generation, and then that means the current generation who, who benefited most from skyrocketing home prices. Uh, something's got to give. And uh, you know, I've spoken to a lot of people, including seniors, who think, you know what, I I uh, 
I don't mind if uh, I lose a bit of that net worth because I want my grandchildren to live near me and, um, and for them to not be spending what we're seeing uh, upwards of like 50, on average 48% of people's <laughs> paychecks going to mortgage payments or even as high as uh, I think it's 73% in, uh, in Victoria, BC. Um, and that's, that's crazy. That's not really a life at that point. Um, just, you just, yeah. just tread water. Especially uh, in a high interest rate environment, right? I mean, right now that's particularly acute. Yeah. I mean, high interest rates will drive prices a bit lower. I think we're going to be headed towards a pretty major recession as uh, two thirds of mortgage payments come up for renewal in the next, uh, uh, next year, I believe next year and a half. Uh, which means that, um, yeah, by 2026, uh, we're going to have a lot of families that are either in a much lo- worse position on a monthly cash flow basis, or we're going to have what we've seen so so far, which is the banks becoming even more of a, a landlord class where they're issuing 47-year mortgages or negative amortization mortgages, where it means that your principal is actually increasing over time uh, as you make your monthly payments. You're not actually paying down your, mor- your, your debt at all. So the bank is your permanent landlord. And uh, like almost forever in that case. So you see the system is so perverse because the whole system, including the banks, are just also expecting prices to eventually go up. So they're willing to do uh, negative amortization mortgages because, you know, eventually the home will go up in value. And if it doesn't, well, uh, too bad for the, uh, the mortgagee. They're just going to keep spending more and more of their paycheck uh, on interest and, and not actually have any benefit. So that's, that's crazy. I mean, there's not much difference between that and the old feudal system where... Yeah, and- the great lords of the land were just charging the peasants uh, all their produce, and they were just living in poverty. Like that's that's not what we want, right? We want to to make capital is supposed to lift all boats, but this way we we treat land as an investment is a leftover of the old feudal system, and we're still suffering it from it today. You know, so so much of the produce of society goes to homeowners and and not to to workers. So you know, we're literally trading the best years of our lives. Uh, to, for to enrich uh, current homeowners, um, instead of like people having more money to afford a vacation or to have kids earlier, uh, instead of saving for a down payment. Um, so I think you know the the solution uh, philosophically, the solution is that society should capture um, the gains that it creates collectively, and it should allow uh, private wealth to increase more for for money that is made through through work and through enterprise, and that would actually be a, a much better market system that's more productive. Um, uh, develops better, is more fair, and keeps debts a lot lower. And that's actually the capitalism that was envisioned by Adam Smith. He talks about land value tax in the wealth of nations, <laughs> but it was too offensive to the land holding class at the time. Just like it's, it's kind of risky <laughs> and today. To today, it's the same thing. But well, this, know, is, this is yeah, one of the great the, misunderstandings of Adam Smith is that he was not a big fan of rent seeking. <laughs> yeah. That's right. So, you know, at Commonwealth Canada, we looked at all forms of rent seeking on the, in the resource sector. And we found that through land, uh, natural oil and gas, minerals overall, uh, that there's like, a, uh, there's over almost $250 billion annually of, uh, of profit that is unearned that could be taxed instead of income taxes or instead of other taxes that could pay everyone 7,000 bucks a year as like a UBI of sorts, or it could, uh, 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 eliminate income taxes for 91% of, of, ta- of people in the country. Um, so, and that is actually would be a much better and fairer system. Uh, now I want to move on to the politics of this and our closing, uh, moments. Yeah. Uh, have you found politicians, housing experts, journalists, civil society leaders, or others receptive to this plan? Uh, it, it isn't, it is appealing. It's 
cogent. Uh, the case you make for it is is persuasive. There's obviously a political sales job here because uh, people get pretty nervous about change. They particularly get nervous about change when it comes to things that might affect their equity. I could see homeowners getting their backs up immediately and not thinking this through. I could see potential net losers being apoplectic because they don't want to lose their unearned uh, winnings. Uh, you, you win the lottery, you don't want to give it back. Uh, have you found anyone to be receptive to this? And I'm particularly curious, if so, whether or not it you find that on the left or or the right or somewhere in between. Um, there's a growing body of uh, land value tax fans in the country. It is definitely um, not in the public discourse yet, but we're hoping to, to change that. So, you know, I've done a lot of uh, uh, public presentations, appearances on podcasts like this. When uh, I speak to existing politicians, they say, well, we need more economists to speak up and say that this is a good idea. They want to hear from the, the Mike Moffitts of the world and such. Uh, you know, and so we, you know, when I speak to individual homeowners, they think, yeah, you know what, I, I'd be better off paying uh, less in, less tax overall. I'd vote for that. It sounds fair if it means that my children can afford a home. Uh, some seniors have said that. Um, but uh, yeah, I think for this to enter the political mainstream, uh, we need to have a solution, especially for the, uh, the, the groups of society that would be negatively affected. Uh, so people feel safe. People feel that this is a transition that is, may have some short-term pain, but long-term uh, we'd all be better off. Um, uh, so it's it's definitely an early stage. Uh, and our own proposal is not complete yet. Like so we have on our site a lot of descriptions about how the how this would improve the incentives, how the what the tax shift could be. Um, but we're working on an actual transition plan that would uh, uh, could be a policy document to be looked at. Um, I just feel that you know as housing this crisis get becomes more and more acute because um, it's definitely not going to get better. Mm -hmm. um, it's not without a lot of pain. and even if there is a huge correction coming in the next few years, um, you know, it, it's still not going to be affordable. Like it's like, typically I remember reading real estate investment books that say that at most housing prices might come down 50%, but then they always go up 100% uh, in the following uh, following bubble. And it's like this always upwards move of right. price. Um, and, you know, in some Canadian papers I, I read say that at most it might be a 30% correction. Some think it'll be only a 15% correction. That, that's not enough. 15% is not enough. So, no. so what's do you know offhand what the rate of growth has been in the last several years? I mean, I know it's it, it's been kind of up and down a little bit, but it's it's certainly more than 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 thirty percent. Yeah, I think just since twenty nineteen, I believe uh, home prices have gone up um, between thirty to fifty percent. I think it was fifty yeah. percent at peak, and it's come down maybe fifteen since then. Um, but you know, a lot's changing, and you know, the the, the Bank of Canada will have to lower interest rates eventually, and that's yeah. just uh, prop up pricing again. Um, Are we in a race against that? So, I mean, I'm reading now that there's speculation that rates will start to come down in mid-2024 in part because of fears of a recession or potentially the arrival of a recession. Um, are we in a race against that moment? Because uh, obviously when for those who are, are capital holders, uh, recessions are opportunities in many cases to to invest that money in, in assets that are or investment vehicles that are cheaper than they would be in, in hotter moments. Meanwhile, a lot of day-to-day -day folks are just struggling to feed themselves. Is there a risk that in a recession, those who have a lot sink that money more into investing in properties and they end up even further out ahead when, when things pick up and prices start to go back up? Um, I mean, yes. So people who have a lot of money uh, on the side are wait, waiting for the correction to buy in. So then, you know, when, when prices go up, then they cash, they're doing really well. 
Um, so the, uh, there's certainly a risk of that. There's a lot of people who actually have been buying at the peak who are going to suffer a lot as prices come down and going to be in positions like right now when like almost a, a third of the mortgage books soon are going to be negative amortization, which they're you know not paying down their mortgage. That's just going to get worse. I really hope the government takes a bolder stance to uh, to write off some of these debts as opposed to have people be in in uh, in in like lifelong negative amortization mortgages. I mean, that's just just crazy, just absolutely crazy. Um, uh, yeah, there's just no really no way around it. There's going to be a painful correction coming. The only way to avoid the correction is is to elongate <laughs> the amount of pain and uh, in terms like slow down the pain so people are just constantly paying more interest than their home is worth, and uh, it's really unfortunate. Yeah, I mean, I've been writing about this a little bit. It does feel like there's a ticking time bomb. In this country, uh, we household debt is through the roof, Con- uh, mortgage debt included, automobile debt, consumer debt, credit card debt through the roof. Uh, we're among the, well, we are the worst in the G7. Uh, economically, we're not exactly growing by leaps and bounds. Um, the housing market feels like a Ponzi scheme. And we have all these, as you mentioned, mortgages coming up for renewal in a fairly high interest rate environment. It seems to me like it's just... Uh, an absolute disaster waiting to happen and that we're slowly moving towards that nobody seems to be doing anything about. I mean, I'm, I'm talking about big structural shifts at the federal or provincial level. Um, I, 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 we're running short on time, so I'll close on this. Uh, just how big is is this ticking time bomb? Because it strikes me that it's really quite big. Yeah, well, I think there's uh, more than $2 trillion of, of mortgage debt, uh, I believe, and uh, I think... Right now, there's 250 billion of that is in negative amortization as we speak. So, if another two thirds is up for renegotiation soon, um, it's that's going to be painful. If half the homeowners are, are underwater, uh, that's going to result in less consumer spending. There's something called the, the wealth effects when people see their net worth going down, uh, then they spend less because they're they're worried because they don't know yeah. they're economically uncertain, um, and that 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 then has a trickle on effect to cause broader recession and less spending overall. Um, and we're near near the tipping point of that cycle. Um, uh, many G- Georgists who are, are land value tax fans, it's uh, there's a Henry George is an old proponent of it. Many Georgist economists uh, show that we're in an 18 year cycle, which which comes up, uh, which is based on land. That housing actually drives the uh, the boom bust cycle in the broader economy because of the dynamic I just explained. That is, uh, eventually it becomes too expensive for people. Too much of the disposable income goes to housing, and then the broader economy slows down because productivity cannot outpace that uh, wage growth is not outpacing um, housing costs. And then uh, spending slows down, and then eventually the economy slows down, and we have an overall bigger correction. Um, so yeah, yeah. many that, that correction is coming in the next 25 or 26. And then the uh, the magic of Canada's housing market, um, maybe that that story will finally evaporate, that, that prices always go up here consistently, uh, as they have since the late 90s, uh, even avoiding the, the 2008 bubble. And uh, and that might we might see less pricing demand after that from investors, um, but uh, I don't know. I, I think they're probably going to do a lot of zombie policies, like again, encourage longer amortizations to prevent that. That's that's actually the only reason the housing market hasn't already crashed, is because right. of uh, allowing these crazy long, like forty-seven year amortizations and negative amortizations, uh, or forty-seven year closed fixed mortgages rather, and um, and that's why we haven't already crashed. Now in some parts of the world, uh, such long um, uh, mortgage terms are illegal because it, it yeah. just permanent uh, interest and in debt payment for people. 
but not in Canada. But uh, you know, something's got to give. Yeah, the, I, I, they're desperate, right? I mean, there's been pressure put on the banks to make sure that everyone stays in their homes. But of course, that pressure is, as you mentioned, you know, these absurdly long amortization periods. So, at which point you're really, I mean, you're you're a renter, <laughs> your rent to the bank for your entire life, which. I mean, I guess you could paint the walls whatever color you want, but you're certainly paying for that privilege. Uh, I could talk about this all day, and I hope we have a chance to revisit in future episodes because I'd like to talk to you sometime down the road about other ideas that you have for UBI, so on and so forth. But for now, I have to leave it there and, and get back to work so that I can afford this mortgage here, <laughs> uh, which thankfully was renegotiated recently and reasonably enough, but, uh, you know, but for the grace of God. Um, uh, thank you so much for joining me for this fascinating conversation. I know people are going to love it. I really appreciate it. Uh, thanks again for joining. Thank you very much. And as always, my thanks to Carolyn Smith, Ross Clark, and Aisha Jar who make the show not just possible, but infinitely better than it would be without them. And my thanks to you for joining us and listening. We'll see you back here in two weeks. <laughs>